Welcome to Houston Sports Talk with your host, Robert Land. Thanks for listening to the best Houston sports podcast. If you're a first-timer, welcome aboard. And if you are, where have you been? I've had 900 podcasts in the last five years. This will be 301. You'll see it up on the episode number, but I didn't always give a number to the interviews that we've done over the years, and there have been, oh, three or four or hundreds, uh, something like that. But uh, speaking of interviews as I record this, on Memorial Day, we can't forget the heroes who lost their lives for this country. At the end of the show, you'll hear my conversation with a veteran from right here in Houston who was there at D-Day, June 6, 1944. You don't want to miss him. Tell his story about what he remembers. Before we get to that, though, can't wait to bring on my friend Ben DuBose. Most of you know him from Locked On Rockets podcast, but over the years, he's done work for MLB.com covering the Astros. And if you follow Ben on Twitter, you know he's always got an opinion or two about the gentleman in orange. We got plenty to talk about, Ben. But the gigantic news this weekend JJ Watt is engaged. And with the wedding around the corner, I'm wondering, what do I get the couple that's got everything? Yeah, it's pretty difficult. I'm waiting on my invite in the mail. I may not get it. My favorite tweet about that last night, Robert, uh, Adam Wexler had. A thing of, uh, you know, Dash Star gets married to local football player. And I thought that was just hilarious, <laughs> you know, with the picture because, uh, you know, someone might have a clue who that is. Just might. Candlesticks always make a nice, nice gift. And maybe you can find where he's registered, maybe a place setting or a silverware pattern. Uh, okay, let's let's get let's get to right here, Ben. And well, we know what to get the Houston sports fan, though, as a gift. A nice 12-pack of new hamstrings. Here you go, yes. Chris Paul, Kiki Cutie, Jose Altuve, Ledmus Diaz, George Springer. I mean, it never ends, Ben. No, it really doesn't. The amazing thing is they finally got Chris Paul's hamstring right. He made it through, you know, the final half of the regular season, the playoffs, relatively healthy. We never saw him have another issue. And yet, somehow, in order to get Chris Paul healthy, well, first off, it didn't give the Rockets a championship. And beyond that... Somehow it seems to have transferred to all of the Astros, Altuve, Diaz, now Springer, which is a grade two. It's tough because, you know, the Astros, they have good depth as an organization. They're certainly going to be fine. But it's a situation where you have to remind yourself whenever these hamstrings happen, it is so, so difficult to avoid the temptation of returning as soon as you feel ready because what ends up happening, it's the Diaz situation, which, you know, it was a grade one. He missed three or four days. And then all of a sudden, a week later, he does it again. And now he's on the IL. And, you know, it can very quickly become something if you don't nip it in the bud that's there all season long. So, you know, the thing that frustrates me most, it's not just about the standings and how the, the or how the Astros, excuse me, are going to play during the stretch without George Springer, it's more how do they avoid the temptation to rush him back too soon as soon as he's feeling, you know, a little perky because these are the types of injuries that if you aren't careful, you look at the Diaz thing, you look at Cootie last year with the Texans, that can last all season long. So the Rockets, or, or the Astros, excuse me, I'm so used to Rockets podcasting, I want to frame everything in their <laughs> context. The Astros have got to be very careful with George Springer and whenever they think he's ready to come back, Give it another week because we have seen so much throughout Houston sports that this is the one injury. It's not just what happens in the couple of weeks that he's out. It's the fact that this can really linger the entire season unless you're very, very careful with it. 
Yeah, I want to 180 back to Springer in a second. But if you were doing your betting pool two weeks ago, of which Astros tr- prospects would get the first call when there were injuries and you had Derek Fisher, Brady Rogers, Garrett Stubbs, and Jack, Jack Mayfield in your pool, you could probably retire to that beach house <laughs> in Maui, Ben. And, and how do you feel about bringing up Derek Fisher as opposed to Straw, Tucker, or, or Alvarez? I'm a little surprised that it's not straw because they have been trying him at shortstop this year with round rock. And obviously he's very fast. So he gives you a different dimension. I'm a little surprised that he hasn't gotten a look. I'm not surprised at all regarding Tucker or Alvarez. There's just a clear incentive within the system to delay these guys until June. And we've seen it time and time again, not just with the Astros, but many teams around the league. So it's one of those things to me, it's hard for me to judge the Astros based on it. It's a collective bargaining issue that clearly teams are incentivized to play it that way. The Astros do have a huge lead in the division. So it's not like, you know, even if it costs them a game or two in the interim in the grand scheme, it's not really going to be all that meaningful. So Tucker and Alvarez, I'm not that surprised at all. I'm frustrated, but it's not a frustration against the Astros issue. It's a frustration that, you know, this is the collective bargaining agreement that major league baseball has put together and it incentivizes teams to act in this way. The one that I'm a little bit confused about, you know, straw with his speed and they've been trying him, you know, we mentioned a short stop the middle infield positions this year. I'm a little surprised that he has not gotten a call yet, but other than that, it's been pretty predictable when you consider that these injuries have happened in May. Now, if these injuries happen in June or anything like it, and then you don't have Tucker and Alvarez getting a call, then yeah, at that point, I'd be very surprised and pretty upset at this point, I just think it's a reflection of the CBA and the Astros playing it as best they can. Yeah, I agree with you. I was real surprised about Straw because also when you look at what he can do with his speed and off the bench, right. if you don't even right. play him, start him, he gives you that just incredible weapon off the bench. And, you know, Ben, um, like I said, I, I want to get back a little bit to uh George Springer and, and Luno said expect Springer back in maybe two weeks. The hamstring not really as serious as it looked. He said, we'd all guess they'd be very cautious though. Like you said earlier, but Ben, as deep as this lineup is, how important is Springer's presence in the lineup? Uh, very important. He's been, in my opinion, the MVP of the American league. He has been a dominant force at the top and he's been their most consistent guy when it comes to driving in runs, you know, People forget, or I guess you can throw Brantley in there as well. Bregman, for all of his strengths, he still has not really driven the ball as consistently as he did a year ago. His average hovering in the mid to low 260s. Now, the OPS is fine because Bregman's so disciplined that, you know, he can, even when he's not hitting the ball all that well, he can work two or three walks like it's nothing. And of course, he still has that clutch gene. But by and large, and he said this in his interviews, he is not as consistently dominant at the plate. He is not as locked in as he was a year ago. And there are a lot of reasons for that. Obviously he had the surgery in the off season, which delayed his start to spring training. Then Altuve, you know, he's been dealing with the hamstring, but what happened the 15 games before he went down with the hamstring, he was hitting about 150. So Springer has been especially important. And with the depth of the Astros lineup, this is where a lot of people, you know, they can't get past the hangup that Springer is the leadoff hitter. And, I, you know, you still see people from time to time wondering, with his production, should they move him lower? Well, with a lineup as good as the Astros, when it's healthy, when you have guys at the bottom of the lineup like Chirinos, Redick, even Tony Kemp, Jake Marisnik, what those guys have contributed this year, the one spot you often are batting with guys on base. This is not the National League where you have, you know, Adam Everett, Brad Ausmus in the pitcher spot, seven through nine. 
you often get big time opportunities RBI wise at the top, even at number one, which Springer has been. So to me, he's been especially important because it's been his production and we can throw Brantley in there as well because he's, you know, in the 330 range all season long. But it's kind of offset the fact that at least from a hitting standpoint, you know, Altuve, Bregman combined, they're about at 250 in terms of batting average. They are not, you know, and again, Bregman in particular, sure, you've got the on-base skills, there's competitive at-bats, but those guys are not really driving the ball as consistently as they were a year ago. And Springer's been a big part of how they've still been explosive offensively and getting all of those runs. So to me, first, you've got to get Altuve back. And it sounds that Wednesday is going to be that. He got in the game Sunday night with Ron Rock. He'll get him one more on Monday. Then I think they'll give him an off day Tuesday to make sure he's right and then put him back in on Wednesday. But I think without Springer, you're going to need to see at least one and hopefully both of Bregman and Altuve get hot and start to do that same damage at the top of the lineup that Springer's been doing all season long. Yeah, you made a lot of good points there. And one point that you made, though, that, that's kind of been, de- I, I don't know, I want to say uh, rebuffed a little bit, but it's not what it what you think it is this year is Alex Bregman in the clutch. And for some reason, the Astros players who've been ridiculously clutch over the years haven't done it this year. I pointed out on Twitter that Alex Bregman, yes, the Bregman who we assume has ice water in his veins is hitting 184 with runners in scoring position and 302 with nobody on base this season. And Yuli Gurriel, who's been Mr. Clutch since day one as an Astro is hitting 200 with runners in scoring position how much of a drop has that been? In his career, he's hit 336 with a 924 OPS in the same situations. So let me explain what I meant by the Bregman discussion. I think he consistently has a high quality of at-bats. However, I don't think, and beyond just don't think, it's clear, as you were saying, in the numbers, he's not hitting the ball that well when it comes to runners in scoring position. And I think the difference is that when you get in these situations, many of them are two outs and you've got, say, a runner on third, a runner on second, it lends itself to him expanding the zone more. So when I say you trust him, I mean that he's typically not going to swing at a lot of bad pitchers. You're not going to have a situation in which he just strikes out on three pitches flailing. However, the difference, I think the lifeblood for Alex Bregman right now is in his ability to know the zone. And with no one on base, he's able to be a lot more selective. He can wait for his pitch when he's batting in one of those, you know, runner in scoring position, two out type situations. Then he knows he feels that, you know, based on the fact that he's perhaps the face of the franchise. And now there's even more on him with uh, George Springer out for at least a couple of weeks. I suspect it'll be closer to a month if I had to bet based on those factors That, to me, is when he starts to expand the zone a little bit because he knows that with a runner in scoring position or with a couple of outs, a walk doesn't really do as much. So that's when he tries to rely even more on his stroke. And his stroke this year has just not really been there. It's been okay, but it's just you can see that even though the numbers are there overall in terms of on-base percentage, OPS, he's very dependent on the walks. He's very dependent on his knowledge of the zone in terms of his swing, his timing, it just has never looked as consistent as it was a year ago. And so I don't think it's so much that he's phased by the moment or that there's anything not clutch about him, 
because I think, you know, definitely he keeps a cool head. We've seen that throughout his career. I think it's more that those numbers are reflective of the fact that in those situations, he knows, and he's probably right, that he needs to be a little more aggressive. The walk does not do as much as it would when, say, there's nobody on base and he's leading off an inning, something like that. And then, you know, you have a more aggressive Alex Bregman, then it just goes back to the same things that we've been discussing all along, which are the fact that his swing, the timing, it's just not there. And, you know, my guess, he said that having a shorter spring training played a role for him. And my guess, he's still trying to sort through it. But whatever, that's the kind of thing. And you can throw Yuli Gurriel in there, too. Although with Yuli, he's such a contact hitter. I think there's always going to be a lot of randomness with someone like Yuli from year to year, just a matter of whether the ball's find holes. I haven't seen that much difference in terms of his timing, his swing, anything like that. But yeah, that to me is where the impact of George Springer is really going to be felt is that, you know, your other guys have been, they've been competitive. You know, Yuli's still a good contact guy. Bregman, even hitting in the two sixties, he gets on base a lot, but it hasn't been those two guys really having that many timely hits because you've had guys like George Springer to do it. Well, now that Springer's out, you're going to have to have one or both of those guys and really others as well step up. And so to me, that's where that Springer injury is really going to be felt. And as I said earlier, let's not forget about Altuve, who the 15 games or so before he went down was hitting about 150. He's another guy that needs to get his stroke going once he gets back to the MLB level. Yuli Gurriel is listed as 34 years old, and I don't know if Jeff Luno did any DNA testing, Ben, but do you have any concern that maybe uh, this is the point in his career where we start to see a decline? Not yet. I mean, it's possible. Crazier things have happened. But to me, as I said earlier, I haven't noticed that many changes in terms of his at-bats. He's actually gotten a little bit more patient. He's gotten deeper into counts this year. I just think he's a guy that... The overall numbers, I believe his OPS now is about 700. So it's a shade below what we've kind of come to seeing him produce in the 750 range. But it's, you know, it's close enough to me in terms of the runners in scoring position. How many times a year ago did we see Yuli Gurriel just have a flare to center a right field that just found a hole? The exit velocity wasn't much, but he's just the quintessential contact guy and Unless his OPS drops a little bit more than it has to this point, seeing him still around the 700 range, I don't see anything that suggests that there's some huge decline going on, maybe a little bit. But I think a lot of it is just, you know, the last couple of years, a lot of those balls found holes. And now the sample size is getting larger. And some of those balls are not finding holes. So to me, I think he's still Yuli. Is he declining a little bit now that he's in his mid-30s? Probably. But at the end of the day, I, I think he'll get... As long as he continues making contact and, you know, if you squint hard enough, he's worked more walks, he's working more counts, then perhaps that offsets the fact that as he ages, his swing's going to be a touch slower. He may not be as instinctive as he has been in the past. So I would say, you know, I'm not going to say there's nothing to it, but I'm also not too worried about it based on the runners in scoring position. I think that's just kind of randomness that's going to even out. And I hope this is the last time we're ever going to see him at second base this year. Oh, God, yes. <laughs> Uh, oh, man. Uh, I had Tyler Stafford from The Athletic on the podcast last week, Ben, and I asked him about Corbin Martin after two major league starts, and Tyler was high on him. I wasn't so high on him because I didn't see a pitcher with the type of stuff that made major league hitters miss in those first two starts. I don't feel better after watching that third start. Meanwhile, 
Forrest Whitley continues to be awful in Round Rock. Bukowskis is improving in Corpus, but is there any question for you now that the Astros need to deal for a third starter? No, uh, that's clearly the biggest need. And Martin, it's a combination of the fact that his stuff, while good, he doesn't get a ton of swing and misses, and he nibbles. And that's a dangerous combination. For a guy that doesn't get that many swings and misses, now I know he had the strikeouts, a lot of them in his debut against the Rangers back when, but when you have a guy that you don't really trust to have the high-end stuff to get out of situations, and he nibbles a lot and ends up in trouble with walks, it's difficult. I'm not going to say there's nothing to it. And of course, Brent Strom is one of the best pitching coaches in the league, so they'll work on it. I'm just skeptical that there's a clear path to him becoming a good starter this season. I think we have really liked what the, the Rocket or geez, I keep saying the Rockets over and over again. That's what you get from having a daily podcast. I really like what the Astros have seen out of Wade Miley. I think that's clearly been a great under the radar signing by Jeff Luno. I think Peacock has flashed. So I think you feel pretty good about those guys in the four and five slots. But yeah, you desperately need one more guy that you really trust a horse to slide in after Justin Verlander and Garrett Cole. To me, that's the obvious need for this team. And especially without Springer now, that may become more in focus now that you don't have the offense to bail you out in some of those games. Madison Baumgartner, Trevor Bauer, Marcus Stroman, uh, Max Scherzer. Uh, who do you like? Who do you want? Who can they realistically get? I've always been a Stroman fan. I think he fits well, but Baumgartner is the holy grail. To me, it's a time that they can make a move, and it really helps this year that Tucker has kind of rebuilt his stock at the AAA level. The further you get away from last year, because I think in the offseason, no one really knew what to make because he didn't really perform at the major league level last year, Kyle Tucker. But the fact is the sample was very small and late last year, you know, the triple a production and the same to start this year, maybe there was a hangover effect. It wasn't there. Well, now that his OPS is back near a thousand, I mean, he is just crushing the ball. I believe after last night, he's had homers in four straight games for the express. I think he has reestablished himself as a premier prospect. I think obviously Alvarez is there as well. And so you have two guys at that level. I'm not going to say that the Astros deal one of those guys just to deal them, because obviously with the guys they have entering free agency in future years, if you can replace those guys internally, then there's going to eventually be a need. But the fact is for a team that's about the here and now with the amount of guys they have in place and their window being, you know, especially big right now with Verlander in his prime, the last two or three prime years of it, I would suspect then to me, you have as good an opportunity as anyone to make a bum garner deal because there are going to be very few teams around major league baseball that have the amount of top end talent that the Astros do. If they, you know, make Tucker or Alvarez available in a potential deal, just the high end talent of that package that can conceivably get you. And, you know, bum is difficult because of the free agency factor. You know, maybe they look at Max Scherzer. I've seen that possibility tossed out depending on what happens with the Nationals between now and the deadline. But I just think that the Astros, it's a clear need. And between Tucker and Alvarez, it'd be nice to have both of those guys, but they truly only need one. If the Astros make one of those available, then there are going to be very few teams around Major League Baseball that have the top heavy talent that Houston does and a potential offer. So between the obvious need that we've been talking about and the fact that the Rockets, are, that the Astros, geez, you're going to have to mute me at some point. Um <laughs> 
the fact that the Astros have so much talent at the top levels of the organization, it's hard not to see the pathway to a deal. Does Tyler White's Astros career end before June 15th? And if so, is he released? Yes and yes. The magic date, I would say, is somewhere around June 10th. If you look after this after this series against the Cubs, they go out for the week-long road trip on the West Coast, and then they get back the weekend of the 7th, 8th, and 9th. To me, that opening up at home, and that's right around the Super 2 cutoff, I'm guessing that's when Alvarez makes his debut, or who knows, maybe even Tucker, because he's got some considerations. But I think that's when you start to see the top prospects come up, and at that point, I don't see how White isn't the first one to go because he gives you no position versatility either. It's not just that he's not producing. It's that the other guys on that bench, you know, for example, Tony Kemp, he has not been as good this year as you would like. But between his versatility, the fact that he can play so many positions, he still has a lot of value. Whereas with White, when you're looking at, you know, a first baseman in DH that isn't even hitting, then I don't know how you justify his presence on the roster once you get a clearly superior DH and first base type bat, which Jordan Alvarez definitely is. It just doesn't make sense to bring one of those guys up and keep white. You would keep your bench as, as being guys that have much more utility, much more position value. So once Tyler gets up uh, or once Alvarez gets up, excuse me, it's hard not to see that being the end of the line for, uh, for Tyler here in Houston. I think Tyler white's big mistake he should have thought up of the hugs for Tyler White before Tony Kemp did. That's all there is to it. <laughs> there you go. I asked tw- Astros Twitter this question, Ben. Who's the most underrated player on this year's team? The choices I put out there, Jake Marisnik, Wade Miley, Will Harris, and Robinson Chirinos. Astros Twitter voted 54% for Marisnik. Now, I think there might be some recency bias, so I'm asking you, Ben, who would you have voted for? That's close. Uh, Maristic, because he's had so many tough catches. I would throw an honorable mention, even though um, the hitting has not been there. You know, I'd mention Kemp as well, only because the quality of the bats. And if they would ever let Tony Kemp play second base, you know, that's my biggest pet peeve. I think he would have so much more value if you would have Kemp there instead of Yuli and prevent some of the miscues like we saw the Sunday Red Sox. But as far as those guys, I'm actually going to say Wade Miley. I think... Marisnik is certainly up there, but I have a tough time seeing his current, you know, 900 OPS form holding. Now his defense has a ton of value and with Springer out for, I'm guessing about a month or so, then Marisnik's going to have close to an everyday presence. And, you know, even if he slips back into being the, you know, below average hitter that he's been most of his career, that defense and center has a lot of value. That said, for me, that's something that I kind of expected out of Jake. I mean, you know what you have going in. Wade Miley consistently giving you six innings, you know, two or three runs being competitive for an Astros team that has had so many issues after their top two horses, Verlander and Cole McHugh, who's now been yanked from the rotation. Peacock's been inconsistent. We talked about Corbin Martin earlier. The fact that you have a guy in your back three that consistently eats innings because that's so crucial because Miley is sandwiched around right now, Martin and Peacock. And in any of those games, you might have to start throwing your bullpen, including, you know, you mentioned Will Harris, who's definitely had kind of a throwback season. 
uh, Hector Rondon. You can throw him in there as well. He's pitched pretty well. At any given point with Martin, with Peacock, with those types, you may have to throw five innings out of your bullpen. That's what you may need to get through. And so to have Wade Miley, a guy who pitched just 80 innings last year, Robert, he had injury concerns. And even aside from the injury concerns, before last year, he just wasn't that good. So uh, there were questions about his durability. There were questions about just how much of it was sustainable because his numbers last year were good, but very, very small sample. And to this point, he's been both durable and good. So for an Astros team that has been so weak on the back end, I would go Miley just because the numbers aren't sexy. You know, you see a guy go out there and give up two or three runs in six innings. You know, it's pretty good. It's nothing that's going to, you know, jump off the page. But when you consider the weaknesses of this particular team, I think it's very, very important because it really eats up a lot of innings and lets that bullpen rest so that they can compensate a bit more for the Corbin Martin, Brad Peacock, and the other issues at the back end of that rotation. Wade Miley also trying to separate himself from Dallas Keuchel. We know he's a lefty. He works fast. <laughs> he, you know, he's got like that solid mid three ERA. It, it, it's all there, but he, you know, he, he, he did show Ben willingness to shave every now and then, at least a little bit. Yeah. I thought that was interesting too, because yeah, ever since he's come here, there've been so many Keuchel comparisons superficially. I get it, but at least a willingness to shave and adapt and be something other than a great value Keuchel. Ben, don't go anywhere just yet, but I, I do want to play a conversation for our listeners that I had a couple of years ago. As I said at the top of the show this weekend, it's about honoring our fallen military heroes. We lost 6,603 Americans on at D-Day, one day at the Battle of Normandy. Houstonian Clyde Combs, one of the men who came out of D-Day alive. The Astros honored 40 World War II vets at Minute Maid Park back in 2016. I was lucky enough to talk to Clyde about his experiences. Here's my conversation with Clyde, beginning with what he remembers about that day. Well, number one, we were surprised. Uh, we were on our way to the Pacific after we had picked up our new PT boat in Bayonne, New Jersey. And we got as far as Miami on the way to Pacific, but they turned us around and, and said, you're going to the European theater. So we... Uh, we got over there and landed in Scotland. Uh, we were, went over overseas on the top deck of a, a T2 tanker carrying 100-octane gasoline, but uh, uh, four PT boats on each tanker. And we had 30 boats that went over, and uh, we uh, landed in Scotland and unloaded from the tanker and got down to southern England to our base in southern England on June the 4th. That was just two days before D-Day. Just enough time to take on ammunition and fuel and be ready. So at 0200 on the morning of June the 6th, we left our base and uh, headed for the French coast. And what I remember about that morning at 0200, still in England, was just the constant drone of planes going over. All you could do was hear them. It was the black of night. As daybreak came, why, we found that many of the planes were towing gliders, the glider troops that were going inland and everything. Then we went to the Normandy beach then. Uh, we had these uh, 30, 36 PT boats for a, uh, a line of defense on the western flank of uh, Utah Beach. That was the two American beaches were Utah Beach and Omaha Beach. And then the British had uh, Gold Beach, Juneau Beach, and 
and then Sword Beach was the Free French and the uh, others. But anyhow, uh, that was our main mission, was to prevent any interference from uh, German uh, e-boats, which were based at Cherbourg, still on the uh, peninsula there, and uh, in possible submarines or anything. That was our mission during the during the de-invasion. Did you know enough to be scared about what you were about to do? No, not really. We were there for a purpose, and you're young, and we were just eager, uh, eager to be there, really, to take our part and do what we could. Does it feel to this day like a dream to you that you you were there, or does it seem like something that's very, very, very real to you even even now? Well, after I got out of the service and went back home to Indianapolis, Indiana, well, then I uh, went to college in Michigan. And after the war, it was just a thing of the past. I mean, you went back into civilian life trying to get uh, work and everything. It wasn't even mentioned. I didn't even talk about the war or uh, anything for 25 years afterward. I mean, uh, busy making a, trying, you know, surviving, making a living. But then I went to a reunion of PT boats that uh, that I saw. There is an organization called PT Boats Incorporated. So I uh, had been. So I got back into the military world to some degree and started going to reunions. And the older I get, the uh, more I realize that uh, <laughs> that there are we we need to talk about it more. And I uh, and make make the world know that we don't need any more World War Threes or any other wars. And I still speak to various clubs, Rotary Club, and school kids and Boy Scouts. Uh, I give talks to to them on the subject. So now, to answer your question, I I do feel uh, what a privilege it was in retrospect. Uh, number one, to still be here to talk about it and to. Uh, make people aware of the sacrifices that uh, I, I feel that I have a mission to make people aware of what a sacrifice so many people have made, young men and women have made before us. When they call you the greatest generation, what do you think of that? When you hear that term, do you feel like that's something that fits what you guys did? Well, Tom Brokaw made that comment some years later, of course, and uh, I didn't feel that it was maybe a personal view of it, that it was not that great, but uh, but in retrospect, again, looking back over history and the greatest war in the history of the world, and to succeed with God's help, that it has proven itself to be, I think. How do you feel that when you see what's going on in the world today? Do you feel like things have improved over the years are we in a in a good place or feel like it's going in the wrong direction well i'll tell you one thing it's a different world from from a, the end of world war ii to today and uh frankly i am concerned about the way it is going because we at least know our enemy knew our enemy then and we do not now it's pretty scary <laughs> and i just hope that uh the leaders of our country can realize that and and uh, make every effort to promote peace and goodwill throughout the world. Well, I just want to thank you on behalf of every American for what you did and for what all of these guys that we're sitting around here at Minimate Park today did. And uh, it might not seem like a big deal, but 
boy, we know we know how big a deal it was. And uh, you were 19 years old when you were going through all that. And, you know, we can't, can't even imagine something like that, most of us. So just really want to thank you so much and really appreciate everything that you guys did. One closing statement. We did uh, in our PT boat efforts or mission there during the invasion and after the invasion. We did, uh, out of our 30 boats, we did lose... Uh, one PT boat and ran ran into a German minesweeper in the middle of the night, black, heavy fog and everything, and we lost the 12-man crew. Uh, we did get hit by a German 88-millimeter gun from a German E-boat that, as they were escorting a convoy one night, our boat got hit, made a big hole in it, but we made it back to our base. So uh, I'm just so thankful for my life and looking back on it and uh, reflecting and what a privilege it was to have served my country for that time. Ben, it was just a privilege and an honor to get to talk to him. And, you know, in a couple of weeks, it'll be the 75th anniversary of D-Day. And it's just remarkable that some of these guys are, are still around. As far as I know, as far as I, I've looked up, I think I think Clyde's doing okay. Uh, I believe he would be 94 this year. Wow. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a great story, and, and uh, I hope they continue to do do that occasionally out at Minute Maid as much as possible. Why why these guys are, are still around because we're we're losing them quick. And I tell you what, I don't I don't know. Have you ever been to Normandy? I have not. I have been to Normandy, but I I didn't get a chance to go to the beaches. It's interesting. I I, I went to France about this was in uh, 2000, so it's almost 20 years ago. I had a wedding for a friend of mine. We both Mizzou grads. It was a one of my college uh, friends at, at Mizzou and another journalism guy. And he married a girl that was actually from Normandy. So uh, the wedding was at her hometown. Unfortunately, her hometown was maybe an hour and a half, two hours uh, by car ride. I didn't have a car, of course, because uh, I, t- I took the train there from from Paris. So I didn't really have a quick and easy way. Her town wasn't exactly super close to any of that stuff. So I didn't get a chance. It was a, you know, it was a big, long weekend. We had a lot of events going on. Unfortunately, I uh, just didn't get, didn't get to do that. But, you know, just the fact that you're like near there and where all this happened, it, it, you know, it was kind of special that way. But is there anything you think about as you, you see what all, all the stuff going on, on on Memorial Weekend? Yeah. And you mentioned that being out at Minute Maid Park, and I'm sure they'll have more today. What's really striking about those, you know, we're in an era of so much polarization when it comes to politics, to news. And one of the things that's really fun about that, beyond the fact that, of course, you want to honor the guys that are still around, that's incredible, considering the distance we're approaching 75, as you said, the fact that some of these guys are still around, that's remarkable in and of itself. But beyond that, you know, the reason sports are such a big escape for us is that for a lot of us, it's so difficult to even talk about the more serious issues because, you know, certainly we'll do it with our inner circle, our friends, our family, things like that. But there are so many just polarized viewpoints out there to where it's so dangerous to, you know, even talk about things these days. And when you get to something like, you know, honoring these veterans and the Memorial Day celebrations that happen everywhere, the thing that I enjoy about it, especially out, you know, at at Minute Maid Park, it's significant, it's news, and it's something that no matter what your biases are, certainly I have my own, you're able to kind of jointly share it. It's one of the things that brings us together. And in this era in which there are so many differences, they're spotlighted all the time, and I'm not meaning to diminish those. However, one of the things that's kind of unfortunate about that is just how difficult it is 
to celebrate the things that we do share and an appreciation for those people. That is something that I think almost everyone can agree on. So in terms of the celebrations, that's kind of what I take about it. You know, not that you're going to have in-depth conversations with strangers about it. I understand, but it's nice to go out. And, you know, one of the reasons that I think a lot of us enjoy going to sports games, you know, there's a certain sense of community that with regards to, you know, news and more serious issues isn't always there because we talk so much about the division that's out there these days. Well, honoring those guys, that's one thing that we do kind of feel no matter what our biases are, we're all on the same team about that. And so to me, that's what's really rewarding. Yeah, I don't want to forget either on D-Day, it wasn't just all those Americans that were lost, uh, nearly 3,000 British, uh, nearly 1,000 Canadians. So, you know, we thank those countries for what they gave and they sacrificed as well. Uh, ben, last uh, thing before we get going, Locked On Rockets, I-, I know you're usually busy. We got a finals coming up too. Who do you like? Who do you want to win in this finals? <laughs> I like Toronto. I want them to win. Uh, unfortunately, I think I'm picking Golden State in six. I would love to be wrong about that. But no matter what the situation is with Kevin Durant, this playoff run, Steph Curry and Draymond Green with their throwback performances and Toronto, I'm still skeptical about Kawhi Leonard and his calf. So I would love to see Toronto win. And as far as the Rockets offseason, I've said this and I still feel this way. The biggest realistic boost that the Rockets could get to their odds of winning a title in 2020 is if Kevin Durant leaves the Warriors. And it obviously doesn't guarantee it, as obvious as evidenced by the fact that the Rockets lost the game six this year without KD playing. But I think over an 82 game season, if the Warriors don't have KD, there's going to be certain just wearing down attrition factors, those types of things that I think would put them in a weaker spot than they were this year. And as far as, you know, what's the easiest way to get Kevin Durant out of Golden State? I think it's if they lose. Now, if they win and he doesn't do anything, then, you know, perhaps that helps as well. But I just think that in terms of the Rockets a year from now, the best case result, the best thing that can reasonably position them to have a better shot a year from now is if Durant isn't there. And the best way to get Durant out is if the Warriors don't win a title. It makes it all the easier to leave. I've heard on the record that Durant would have, left a year ago had the Warriors lost to the Rockets. Unfortunately, they didn't. It's hard to walk away when you keep winning titles and you're having these parades every June. So for the Rockets' sake, I think it's beneficial if Golden State loses, and I hope they do. However, logic tells me they're a better team. It's not a commanding edge. The Raptors do have home court, so it wouldn't floor me if Toronto wins. But if I had to bet, unfortunately, I would pick Golden State. And hey, Ben, maybe the Rockets – Ended Kevin Durant's career in Golden State. Maybe that's the last <laughs> game he ever plays. <laughs> Maybe. Imagine that. <laughs> it's not exactly how we wanted it to, to say no. that. <laughs> it ended when uh, Iman Shumpert went up to uh, to block a mid-range shot, and he just came down wrong on his ankle or his uh, calf. Imagine that. Yeah. Well, uh, thanks so much for doing this. Uh, really appreciate it. And uh, Locked on Rockets. Everybody knows how to find that, right? Yep. Yep. iTunes, LockedOnRockets.com. It's pretty easy to find. Appreciate the plug, though. All right, great. Everybody have a wonderful weekend. Hope you had a wonderful Memorial weekend and got to uh, enjoy some time there off, and we'll talk to you again really soon. You're listening to Houston Sports Talk. Don't forget to follow Houston Sports Talk on Facebook and Twitter. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, the Google Podcast app, or the Stitcher app. You can support us by giving us a five-star review on iTunes or by telling your friends about us. Spread the word, everybody. Thanks for listening.
Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States. My fellow Americans, last night when I spoke with you about the fall of Rome, I knew at that moment that troops of the United States and our allies were crossing the channel in another and greater operation. In this poignant hour, I ask you to join with me in prayer. Give strength to their arms, stoutness to their hearts, steadfastness in their faith. Success may not come with rushing speed, but we shall return again and again. And we know that by thy grace and by the righteousness of our cause, our sons will triumph.